Amen. Let's go ahead and open up our Bibles to Psalm chapter 15. Psalm chapter 15, and we'll begin in verse 1. It's a short little psalm here. O Lord, who may abide in your tent, and who may dwell on your holy hill? He who walks with integrity and works righteousness and speaks truth in his heart. He does not slander with his tongue, nor does evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a reprobate is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord. He swears to his own hurt and does not change. He does not put out his money at interest, nor does he take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things will never be shaken. So I wanted to share on this psalm. Uh, it's an interesting little psalm. Uh, Spurgeon called it uh, the psalm of question and answer. It's kind of got a simple division. Look in verse 1, you've got the question that's being asked to God, and then you've got the answer in the uh, remaining several verses there. And so let's, let's begin with the question here. O Lord, who may abide in your tent? Who may dwell on your holy hill? And if you notice in your margin, the word abide is actually the word sojourn, you know, sojourning. The Israelites were sojourning. They were kind of traveling about from place to place, and they dwelled in tents. And God also had his tent among them, and it was called the tent of meeting. And so this question here, it seems to me, is asking, Lord, who can, who can come near to you? Who can, who can dwell with you? Who can have communion with God? Who can be near to God? And a lot of the old uh, divines, you know, they, they said, well, this is in reference to the church or this is in reference to heaven. Uh, even the title here in the NAS, Description of a Citizen of Zion, that was uh, a name given by Thomas Boston, a Puritan. Um, but regardless of what it's talking about, we can surely say it's asking the question of who can be near to God, who can, who can be in his presence and this question kind of presupposes some things, if you think about it. Why does he ask this question? And the answer is because not everyone, I mean, no, not everyone can just waltz up into the presence of God, right? Um, there, there's the question of who can be in his presence. Why? Why is that? Well, you have it here in this word, holy. Who may dwell on your holy hill? And the answer is because God is holy, right? I mean, he is separate from sinners. He is He's perfect. He's blameless in all his ways. And we are not. And that is the, the single great dilemma of the Bible. Who, who can dwell on your holy hill? Who can be in your presence? And he answers the question in these following verses. But, I mean, just look at some of this. He who walks with integrity, works righteousness, speaks truth in his heart. I mean, have you done that? I mean, have you worked righteousness perfectly? Have you walked in integrity perfectly? And to which all of us can say, no, we have, we have not. And so ultimately, the answer to this question is, you know, no, none of us can dwell on God's holy hill. I mean, there's only one man that ever lived that can dwell on God's holy hill, right? And that's the Lord Jesus Christ. And if we're going to get in somehow into a right relationship with God, it's not going to be based upon our works, but by trusting in him, coming to the righteous one. And so that's kind of the the overall banner under which we live, right, that, that we're trusting in the righteous one. He was the one that had perfect integrity, 
He never sinned. He always worked righteousness. He always had the truth in his heart. Um, so that's kind of the banner under which we live. But, but these verses here, I don't believe, are talking about that, right? They're not talking about the imputed righteousness of Christ. They're not talking about justification by faith. Uh, these verses are talking about specific qualities of a life, right? It seems to me that they're speaking about communion with God or dwelling with God, nearness to God, and the qualities of life that people need to experience more of this, to dwell on the holy hill of God. So this psalm to me is surprising. Um, It it stuck out to me several months ago, and um, I guess it's surprising to me in the answer to the question, right? I mean, he's asking this question, and I mean, what would you say if we could just kind of cut out the rest of the verse, put your hand over it, and you didn't get to see the rest of the verse? Someone came to you and said, I just want to know more of God, right? Uh, wh- what do I do? You know, I mean, what, are the th- what are the things I need to do to, to dwell with God, to know more of God? Well, I can tell you what I would think. You know, I would start thinking about, well, you need to have, more, you need to have longer devotion times, right? I mean, you need to pray more, or you need to be in the Word more. That's, that's how you can know God, and that's true. Um, we're not saying those things are not important. But the answer surprising to me is because he starts talking about kind of the whole sphere of the man's life, right? I mean, he starts talking about how he treats other people. Verse 3, he does no evil to his neighbor, doesn't take up a reproach against his friend. Uh, who he honors, he honors those who fear the Lord. He, he despises people that uh, you know, are wicked or fall away. He swears to his own hurt and does not change. I mean, he's... He's committed. If he comes into an agreement, he's going to stick to it, even if it ends up costing him in the end. He, he's careful with how he uses his money. He's not ripping people off. Um, I guess it's just surprising to me, you know, I mean, that he gives this description of kind of the whole sphere of a man's life and says, this is the thing that's directly connected with how much of God you're going to experience. I mean, pretty amazing. It is these sorts of people who will dwell on the hilltop in communion with God. So what is this psalm teaching us? It's saying that it's, it's directly related. The, our knowing God is directly related to our day-to-day lives. To the degree that we put sin out of our life, to the same degree will we experience more of God. I mean, if the cup, if the cup is full of sin, how can it be full of God at the same time, right? I mean, it's got to be emptied. It's got to be dealt with. I think that's what the psalmist is saying here. Sin is the great and only hindrance to having more of God. I mean, do you think like this? I mean, in your mind, you know, I mean, that this, this thing, sin, this is the great hindrance to me experiencing more of the Lord. Think about it. The, the Bible is actually full of verses that kind of make this clear. Psalm 66, verse 18, you don't have to turn there. If I regard wickedness in my heart, the Lord will not hear. Right? It's like there, there's this blockage there in the heart. You're, you're holding on to something in the heart, and it's like the channels are broken. God's distant from you. Um, or in Isaiah 59.2, Your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. The same kind of idea. This sin is com- coming in there, and it's disrupting this communion. It's ma- putting this distance, experiential distance between you and the Lord. 
So what, what, what this psalm is saying is that ascending the hill of the Lord, dwelling on his holy hill, being in his presence, abiding in his tent, um, it's not achieved necessarily by academics or by being a great theologian or uh, you know, reclusive monk. I'm going to go out in the wilderness and get away from everyone else that's causing me to sin and there somehow I'll come near to the Lord. But rather, nearness to God can be achieved by the simplest believer by simply departing from sin in the life, right? By doing these things, by living this life that's laid out before us. You see, it's such lofty heights, abiding in his tent, dwelling with God, and yet the answer given is such, it's like just such practical day-to-day type stuff, living. So I want to look at a few of these things here. And actually, I kind of want to focus on verse 2 because verse 2 kind of really covers the rest of the, the items that are listed in the psalm. So verse 2, who, who may, or verse 1, O Lord, who may abide in your tent, who may dwell on your holy hill, he who walks with integrity, works righteousness, and speaks truth in his heart. And I kind of want to take him in reverse order here, but speaks truth in the heart, works righteousness, and walks with integrity. So this first one here speaks truth in his heart. Psalm 51, 6, Behold, you desire truth in the innermost being. He doesn't say that the psalmist here does not say speaks truth from the heart, but in it. He speaks truth in his own heart. And true holiness begins here, right, in the thoughts of our heart. If we don't start here, then everything else is in vain. Why? Because God's concerned about the heart, right, the issues of the heart. As Christians, we have new hearts, right? New natures, new desires, new affections. At the core of who you are, you are really new. You are changed. You love God now. You love righteous now. You really do hate, hate sin now. You're different. As Paul says, you're a new creation in Christ Jesus. And yet, Paul says that we still have the flesh to contend with, right? We still have unredeemed mortal bodies. Um, we still have all the effects of our past life, all the old pathways of thinking that we were used to you know, operating in those grooves for years, certain responses to situations, you know, certain things that, kinda, that were snares to us and that we repetitively went in those motions. And so much of the Christian life is, is learning to do what he says here in verse 2, speaking truth in his heart, right? It's renewing the mind, it's, it's, it's rooting out the old, the old ways of thinking and beginning to think like Christ, to th- have the mind of God, to think like God. Conrad Merle said this, and, and I love this quote. This has been an extremely helpful quote to me. He who does not bring his thought life into subjection unto what he knows to be true will lead a miserable Christian life. And that's true. I mean, haven't you found that by experience? I mean, if you're tolerating sin in your mind, in your thought life, I mean, are you not miserable? I mean, it makes you miserable. You know, I mean, unless you, you bring your thought life into subjection under the truth you already know, the truth of the word, it is miserable. Much of our sanctification takes place in our thoughts, right? Learning to preach the truth to ourselves, like our, our brother Martin Lloyd-Jones has taught us. What is sin? You know, I mean, every sin behind it is a lie, right? I mean, it's, it, it, it's not true. 
It's not real. Sin comes to you and says, this is who you are. You like this thing. This, you, you should do this thing. And I mean, sanctification, learning to fight, that is preaching the truth. No, that is not who I am. You know, I am a new creation. I, I, I have been raised from the dead by Jesus Christ. I belong to him. I'm a child of God now. I'm on my way to heaven. I don't belong to this present age anymore. I don't belong to this world and what it lives for, what it loves. I no longer love and I no longer follow. Christ, he, he's my treasure. He's my satisfaction. There is no joy in sin anymore. It, it, it's only despair. It's only ruinous. And to, to, to preach the truth to yourself. I mean, how many of you wake up in the morning full of joy, uh, full of faith, full of hope in God, expectations about the day? I mean, I, I can tell you that I don't. If you do, you must be part angel. Um, but, you know, when I wake up in the morning, I'm just thinking about, oh, man, you know, it's, it's a hard day. I've got this thing to do and this thing to do, and I have to put up with this. And, uh, I mean, it, naturally, your mind is not, it's not, it's not going the right way. At least mine's not. And I'm just trying to, like, base, just start thinking basic thought. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. You know, I'm just trying to tell myself something true. You know, I mean, this is, this is the day of the gospel. I should rejoice and be glad in it. Or taking a hot shower. Thank you, Lord. You know, I remember being in India with John and taking the cold showers or whatever and being sick. And, oh, thank you for a hot shower, Lord. And uh, just, just something that's true, you know, I mean, that's right. So who is the man who can dwell with God? He who speaks truth in his own heart. You cut off the lie, right, before it gains a foothold in your heart. You kill it before it gives birth to sin. Many of you might remember this illustration, but Spurgeon, you know, there was a time when a man was kind of following at a distance behind him, and he was walking, and all of a sudden Spurgeon stopped and kind of, you know, bowed his head for a minute and then just kept walking, and the man asked him, oh, you know, I saw you stop in the middle of the, the sidewalk there. You know, what were you doing? And he said, a shadow came between me and my Christ, and I had to deal with it immediately. You know, that's such a, thank God for Spurgeon, you know, it's such a great illustration of, of dealing with the thing when it starts to come in, cutting off sin, speaking truth in the heart. Perhaps a thought of unbelief, you know, I mean, about God's goodness toward you, about his dealings with your life, the way he's led you his providence what he has or has not given to you that thought comes into the mind you know and you start to to feed on it you know this might sound ridiculous but I had this happen to me this week you know I I read this article some of you may have seen it about a polar bear it was like emaciated and dying and and it said this is from global warming and I think it may have been may have been the devil but you know the thought came into my mind about how you open your hand and satisfy the desire of every living thing and I was thinking Lord you didn't that Poor polar bear. I mean, he's first falling off. He's dying. And, you know, I gave into that thought. And there were some other unbelieving thoughts about God's goodness. But then I read that psalm, and it says, and he takes away their breath, and they expire. <laughs> Both things are there. God, you know, and then I see the truth of it. You know, I mean, God, God, yeah, he does open his hands and satisfy the desire of every living thing. But he takes the, the breath of life away from creatures, too. He's sovereign over them. And he's good, you know, in all his dealings. A thousand times a day, I mean, isn't that the Christian life? You know, I mean, a thousand times a day, the lie comes in the mind or the temptation or the sin. And what are you going to do with it? You know, I mean, are you going to kill it? Are you going to counter it with the truth like the Lord Jesus did with the devil there when he was tempted? So the first thing here, he speaks truth 
in his heart. The second thing, works righteousness. Notice, not the one who talks about, thinks about, or hears about righteousness, but he who does it. What what does James say? But prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. Right? He says, he who works righteousness. One man said, a mere verbal Christian is a real atheist. And the psalm ends with this, right? He who does these things will never be shaken. He who does these things, he who works righteousness. Have you ever noticed, I mean, that the people that you're around, that the most generous, are, I mean, the people that really pour out their life in service to others, they are the most filled? I mean, God has set it that way. He set it up that way, right? I mean, that the more you give, the more you pour out yourself unto others, the more that you yourself are filled. The more of God that you have, the more of God that you know. And, can, and the opposite is true as well. The more selfish you are, the more stingy you are, the more unhappy you are. I mean, there's no blessing there, right? The presence of God is not there. He's with the man who works righteousness, right? I mean, there's a, there's a nearness. God comes and is near to that man. He dwells on the holy hill of God. The place of spiritual blessing is when we walk as Jesus walked, right? We can't have fellowship with Christ on the one hand. You got, you got him in hand and then sin in the other hand. It just doesn't work that way. You can't, you can't have it both. I mean, there, there's got to be the departing from sin to have more of Christ. You know, I know of one uh, professing Christian pastor, this is in the past year, who was divorcing his wife. And he was talking, and, and not for good reason, and he was talking about how, how he's feeling more near to God that, than ever, you know, while he's in the process of divorcing his wife. I mean, that's total deception, right? That's not true. He's not, a, he's not experiencing more of God. Um, his son rebuked him, told him that you need to get out of the ministry. He wouldn't, he wouldn't heed it. He wouldn't listen to it. You know, this thing of working righteousness, following Jesus will take you to strange places, right? I mean, you will find yourself in situations in your life that you never expected to be in. I mean, I can remember times with Brother John in Bangladesh or, you know, just thinking you're in the backside of nowhere, but there's such joy, you know, I mean, sharing the gospel with these people or some of you have had people in your home that, you know, that maybe it's not exactly comfortable, but there's joy there. There's life there as you're he, he works righteousness. The man works righteousness, and there's joy. Or perhaps some of you working with disabled people, or you thought, oh, I could never do that, or, or whatever. But there's joy there in becoming like Jesus, following in the footsteps of Jesus. A million other things like that. God is near in those things. <clears throat> I mean, look at, look at some of these things that are listed here in verse 3. These are different works of righteousness. And sometimes it's not the things you do, it's the things you don't do, right? I mean, there's joy in that. Does not slander with his tongue. You're just, you're just keeping yourself from talking bad about other people, making them look bad in front of other people. Does not take up a reproach against his friend. You don't listen to it either, right? You don't, you don't listen to the gossip. In whose eyes a reprobate is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord. I mean, you're just honoring those to whom honor is due. You've got a, a, a king or a president who's a wicked man. You, you, you honor the office, but you don't honor the man, 
you know. Whereas you might have a poor, despised Christian believer who you know is walking with God, you honor them, right? Does not put out his money at interest, which seems to be related kind of to the, the old covenant laws there about not ripping off your fellow Israelite. Does not take a bribe against the innocent. You're not going to pervert justice. I mean, you're just dealing justly in all of your things. Swears to his own hurt. You know, you're a businessman. You come into an agreement. You don't break the agreement even when it goes bad. You know, it costs you or whatever. But you are faithful to the word, to the, the, the agreement you came into. I mean, those are big things to God, apparently, right? I mean, and those are big things related to our experience of God, to knowing more of God. It's the whole sphere of our life. You know, one Christian pastor, he asked some of his, his, his people, you know, how are you doing spiritually? And then every one of them began to talk about how their devotions were going. You know, I just thought that was kind of interesting, you know, because it's like immediately you go to that, okay, good, you just told me about, you know, 30 minutes or an hour or two hours of your day, you know, but what about the rest of your life? You know, I mean, it's the whole sphere of life. I mean, you could have a real great time of devotion and spoil it the rest of the day, you know, on the job with sin or something. So works righteousness. And then this last one here. Walks with integrity. The idea of this word is perfection. The, the Hebrew word is actually perfectly. Um, but obviously we know it's not talking about perfection or none of us could stand here today and I couldn't preach this message right now. Um, but the idea is wholeness or completeness in all of its parts. There's, there's not like one part that's seriously defective in the person's life. Like, yeah, all this other stuff is real good, but then... Uh, at home, they're a monster, you know what I mean, with their family or whatever. Um, where there's soundness, you know, of moral character, integrity. You know, this is what we're all striving at, to have integrity, to be the same in all areas of life. At home, school, church, sporting events, you're not the crazy parent screaming at your child or whatever, or the other, or at the umpire. I mean, integrity, you know, of character. You know, and I was just thinking what a blessing it is to have so many men of integrity, you know, in the church. I mean, just, I was thinking about, I came to be a part of the church about 10 years ago, and I mean, I was struck by it when I first came, you know, and just saw and began to see the lives of the older men and women, um, just this integrity, you know, what an example to set before the younger people. You know, in my mind, some of you, I mean, you're like immovable rocks, you know, I mean, just spiritual rocks, dependable, faithful um, it's such a blessing, praise God. If someone were to come to me and accuse you of gross sin, my first response would be, I don't, I don't believe it. You know, why? I know that, I know that person. He's a man of integrity. I, I've seen the areas of their life. You know, I've seen how they are with their family. You know, I've seen how they are in their day-to-day life, in the prayer meetings. What a heritage to leave your children, right? I mean, even if your kids are not yet converted, I mean, if they can remember back and think about mom or dad, wow, they had integrity. They were sincere. They really tried to follow the Lord. You know, I mean, they, they, they really did love other people. Yeah, they had their failings, but they really did try to serve other people. I mean, what, what, that's, what better can you set forth to leave your children and for God to perhaps use in their life as they grow older and they see all the wickedness of the world and they think back to mom and dad and how... Just the sincerity, just the the faithfulness, the consistency, the integrity of their life. Brethren, we must, we've got to grow in this, right? We've got to have this. If we would know more of God, this, 
This is the answer to the question. Walks in integrity. Walks, lives out consistently. Integrity. If there is some area in your life, you know, where you feel like you don't have integrity in it, well, I mean, what should we do? We should aim all your cannons at it, right? Solicit the prayers of the saints. Fast, pray. Seek to take the ground. You know, this is what we want. I'm sure that if we did so, there'd be more of God to be had in our life, more to experience more of his nearness, his goodness. One old Puritan said this, Lord, help me to purge the fountain, and then the streams will be pure. And I thought that was good. I mean, if you, it's kind of a progression, although backwards in the psalm here, but, I mean, it begins in the heart. If you have that, you're, you're working individual deeds of righteousness, and the culmination of that, right, is a life of integrity, wholeness. So, you know, in conclusion, I, I hope these things have been an encouragement to us to press on to know the Lord. You know, God, God is gracious. It's not like, you know, this is like you put the coin in the box and then out comes the presence of God. I'm not saying that. But I'm just saying this is the sphere. God, God cares about the whole life, right? And just the day-to-day life, that living out these things, having these qualities, is the life that will taste more of God. You will dwell on the holy hill of God. You will abide in his tent. I can tell you by experience that this is true. And you can tell me by experience that this is true, right? I mean, those times in your life when you've not been violent against sin, I mean, the joy is gone. The Holy Spirit is grieved. There is a distance. But when, when you are dealing with these things, when you are walking with the Lord, when you are careful not to, to grieve His Spirit or sin, there's joy, right? There's life. There's blessing there. And so that's, that's what we need. You know, that's what we want. So... May the Lord may the Lord help us to, to to live this way and to experience, to abide in his tent and to dwell on his holy hill. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, um, Lord, we do just say we'd rather live these things than hear about them or preach them, Lord, and so we pray that you'd stamp them upon our souls, Lord, that we would be men and women like this. Lord, that you teach us to speak the truth in our own hearts. Lord, to to work righteousness, to to seek out, to learn the things that are pleasing to you. Lord, even when it's uncomfortable or hard. um, And to be men and women of integrity. Lord, we pray, help us, Lord. We're putting ourselves at your feet, Lord, trusting your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.